Well, good morning again. My name is Mike, one of the pastors here, and it's a joy for me uh, to uh, try to explain some of that passage uh, that was just read. Um, let me as well pray just briefly. Lord, help us to see, help us to hear what we ought to, and I pray that we wouldn't be proud or fearful of what we see and hear in your word, but that we would receive it with joy. In your name, amen. So we are making our way through the Gospel of Mark. It's a biography of Jesus. And so, you know, the, the last couple of weeks have been um, kind of really uplifting and encouraging. And, you know, as Josh was reading through that passage, it's like, well, that turned dark in a hurry. <laughs> All of a sudden we end up with an execution. And so what actually is happening, what's going on in this part of the biography, like, any other biography, we're trying to find out about the main character who is Jesus, so we're going to talk about that, of course, in a few minutes. Um, we're talking about his aims and his purposes, and specifically, this type of biography is calling for a response. We're going to be looking at that, but what we're seeing here is kind of the momentum and the success of Jesus seems to be halted here. There seems to be some roadblocks. Um, there's opposition to God's king. You know, if you think about the last couple of weeks, or if you were to read through the previous passages, it's like Jesus is in the midst of a storm, he's actually sleeping, his disciples and followers are panicking, they wake him up, and he's like, peace be still, and boom, the whole sea goes calm. It's like, wow, success. And, you know, he's going into a, a far region, and a man comes who nobody can subdue, he's, he's actually possessed by a legion of demons, and Jesus, as the stronger man, just masters that that uh, demonic horde so to speak and you see the success of Jesus and he's healing a woman who is chronically um, sick for 12 years and and ritually unclean and then he's raising Jairus's daughter from the dead and it's just like it's just like Jesus seemingly rolling success after success after success and then chapter six comes and it's like he goes to his hometown and you, you know you're thinking in your hometown you're going to receive like you know a big welcome you know I remember when we, in college, we won a, uh, a tournament, and we came back, and like, it was a small college, not a big deal, so don't be that impressed, but they were like waiting for us, like lining it, the bus drove in, it was like, yeah, great, blah, 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 whatever. So you would think that that's the kind of reception that Jesus would get, but he does not get that reception at home. And so it's like, man, and then he sends out his disciples, and he sends them out with kind of a little bit of a warning, like, hey, when you go out... Some folk aren't going to receive you, and so here's how you should respond. And then, of course, you've got the whole situation with John the Baptist there. It's like, what's going on? And I think most scholars will say it's a little bit of a digression. It's kind of, in a sense, bringing the story, the narrative arc of John to a conclusion, of course. But it's also going to be foreshadowing. If that's what they did to Jesus' forerunner, the guy who prepared the way for Jesus, what do you think they're going to do to Jesus? And so... You know, I, I, one of the things I like about this particular passage of Scripture is, you know, kind of realistic, how realistic it is uh, for us. You know, if you are a follower of Jesus, life doesn't always feel like one success to the next, does it? <laughs> you feel conflict, you feel opposition, you, 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 you sense those, in a sense, barricades in your life at times. And what the big idea kind of of this passage is saying is that in the kingdom of God, it ought not to surprise us. In fact, we ought to expect that there will be difficulty and opposition as you follow Jesus. 
But that's okay, because Jesus overcomes the opposition. Amen? And there's a little bit of a witness, even at the end, where Jesus, you know, after, you know, they've been doing their teaching and preaching, and they come back and they report to Jesus, and they're tired, and there's John the Baptist's death, and there's all that kind of almost like trauma and grief. Jesus says, come away and rest a while. It's like this little witness that in the end, there's going to be rest, there's going to be peace, there's going to be victory. And so a lot's actually in this little section here. They don't, in a sense, this section doesn't tell the whole story about Jesus, but it, it kind of witnesses or foreshadows to some of the bigger themes. So that's, that's kind of what we can learn from this morning. And I think it's good. Like, I, I love coming to church and being, you know, exhorted and encouraged. It's like, man, you know, you sing some songs like that. You're like, okay, I'm ready to go. I leaned over to my wife in the first service right after the call to worship. We hadn't sung or nothing. I'm like, oh, we can go home. I was like, I'm ready. I'm good. I'm thankful for that. But... We also need to, you know, as, as a church, we need to, like, recognize that life in the kingdom of God can be difficult and hard. And there is opposition, and we can just, we can sit in it, and it's okay. And Jesus will be with us, and he'll strengthen us, and he'll get us through. Amen? And so that's one of the ways that chapter 6 functions this biography, that you can expect some opposition and some difficulty as you follow Jesus, but be of good courage because he's overcome the world. So here's how we're going to look at this. We're just going to look at, instead of looking at it episode by episode, there's probably four episodes in here we could kind of walk through, but instead of doing it that way this morning, we're going to look at it thematically. There's a couple of themes, there's you know, certainly more that could be talked about, but there's a couple of themes that come out of this uh, passage that are pretty obvious and I think will be helpful and, uh, to, to help us understand what's going on with Jesus and uh, the flow of the story. So the, the first theme is, is the identity of Jesus. So we'll look at that. The second one is, you know, the opposition to Jesus. We'll look at that theme. And then finally, the third theme that we'll look at is the sending of Jesus, how he puts his followers on a mission. And so all three of those things, I think, will connect us. So let's look at the first theme, uh, the identity of Jesus. And so if you've been with us um, in this study, you know, praise God for that. But the, you know, like, we're going to talk about the identity of Jesus again. And the answer to that question is yes. We're going to talk about the identity of Jesus because... In the biography, that's pretty much like the big deal. Who is Jesus? And that question, or some form of it, comes up again and again and again. And just by way of application for us, even if you kind of feel like you've got a quote-unquote decent handle on the identity of Jesus, I still wonder, once we kind of understand who he really is, are we really responding in trust and confidence as we ought to, based on his identity. And so uh, I think there'll be application for us wherever we're at, if we're seeking Jesus for the first time, or if we've heard about him for the thousandth, so to speak, I think the identity of Jesus powerfully speaks to us in our situations even today. And so if you have, you know, you can kind of stroll through here if you have it. Again, we've got extra copies of these if you want a little biography, or if you have your Bible, you can go to chapter 2 and verse 7. And we, when we went through this, this was when Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed. And when his friends brought him in, you know, you guys remember that? They kind of lower him through the ceiling. And, you know, then Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And, you know, all his friends look at each other like, that's not why we brought him. You know, remember that? We want him to be healed. And Jesus is already at that early stage in Jesus' ministry, there's opponents, there's opposition that have their antennae up that are like, who is this guy? And for Jesus to say, which he does, your sins are forgiven, is kind of putting Jesus on par with God himself. 
And they say, quite right, theologically, who can forgive sins but God alone? And so what are those people asking? What question? They're asking, who is Jesus? They're asking a question of identity. And I just mentioned a minute or so ago, the disciples, his followers, those who were, you know, so you could kind of see those were kind of like contra against Jesus folk. At least initially they were suspicious and skeptical. And he got his followers in the boat, you know, told you how he says, peace be still. And there was, you know, there was a mega wind, the text said. And after Jesus got up from his nap and rebuked the sea, there was a mega calm. And his disciples, well, then he rebukes them. Still no faith, he says to them. You still haven't quite got it yet. They were filled with mega fear, great fear, and said, who then is this? So now Jesus' followers are trying to, they're grappling with, who is he? And then in our passage, of course, that was read by Josh earlier, just a couple minutes ago, when Jesus is in his hometown, you know, it's not a parade that's welcoming him. He does go to the synagogue, so there is some respect shown to him, and he teaches amazingly. It says he does a few miracles, which is impressive to some. They've heard about all kinds of other miracles, right? And then they say, wait a minute, who is he? Isn't this Mary's son? The carpenter? <laughs> which I love, That's the, this is the only place where Jesus is called a carpenter in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And this is totally a little bit of an aside here, but this is one of my favorite comments that one of the uh, commentators I was reading make. In, in that little town of Nazareth, not a very big town, Jesus would have kind of in some sense been Mr. Fix-It. He would have been your local handyman. He would have been the guy that was good with wood and stone and all of that. And so, isn't this guy that just fixes our houses? When in reality, Jesus came to fix the whole world. Talk about misidentifying. Yeah, he's like the carpenter of the new creation, okay? And like, they're like, we know his brothers and sisters. And he, they name them here. Jesus, big family, by the way. Four brothers and a few sisters. And so that's the question even his family is grappling with. Opponents, disciples, hometown, and Mark says friends, family, and locals. So it's like the whole lot of them. And then it's not even just that. It's not like, you know, he's kind of regionally popular. There's opponents, disciples, family. But then, you know, as we continue to read through these episodes, even the king, King Herod, King Herod heard about Jesus. You know, he was kind of like the local boy who made it big, okay? You know, he's just grown up in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's just a carpenter there, but now he's in his early 30s, and he's so prominent, and he's so quote-unquote successful, that now even the king has heard about him. And the king is like, well, who is this guy? Is he John the Baptist raised from the dead? Is he Elijah is he a prophet like one of the other prophets? <laughs> I love Herod's conclusion. So there's all these like debates about who Jesus is. And in chapter 6 and verse 16, he says, Herod, when he heard of it, he goes, no, John the Baptist, whom I beheaded, that's who it is. <laughs> Herod confidently and radically, uh, uh, ignorantly, comes to the wrong conclusion about who Jesus is. And so everybody is asking this question. And pretty much what everybody's trying to do is put Jesus 
in a categorical box that they're familiar with. The opponents were like, we got a category for people like you, Jesus, false prophet. No one can forgive sins but God alone. The disciples, more open-hearted, they're not sure what to say. They're just like, who is he? Because in the Old Testament, the only person that masters the wind and the waves and the sea is the Lord, <laughs> Yahweh. Is that who he is? His friends and family, you know, you guys have ever heard that phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? They were just so familiar with him. There's no way he can be the son of God. I mean, the, the humanity of this story is, to me, very endearing and compelling. I mean, can you imagine growing up with Jesus, right? James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Fight breaks out in the house. Mary's not there. It's like, who started it? Never Jesus. <laughs> you know, it was never him. And so just that kind of sibling rivalry, you're familiar with him. It's, it would be a pretty hard jump to be like, okay, I grew up with him, I ate with him, I slept next to him, you know, we, we built uh, things together with him, all that stuff, and then now all of a sudden at 30 years he goes and gets baptized by this kind of wild prophet in the wilderness named John the Baptist and starts doing these amazing miracles. It's pretty hard for you to be like, son of God? No, and they were, it says they were offended by him. Scandalos is the Greek word. They're scandalized by him. Would you just calm down? If you're familiar with the story of David and Goliath, when David was going to fight Goliath, his older brothers were like, yo, get back with the sheep. You're nobody important, even though he'd been anointed by God as king too. It's actually pretty typical. And so, you know, Jesus' identity has been misunderstood, confused, willingly maligned, all of that in this passage. And so for us, it's just really important at this point and other points in the narrative. By the way, when you get to chapter 8, which is where a transition happens, 1 through 8 is kind of one section of Mark, 8 through 10 or 11 is another, and then 11 through the end is his death and resurrection. And so kind of at the end of this first section, Jesus himself presses the point. In chapter 8 and verse 27, Jesus went with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, one of the prophets, just like what happened in chapter 6. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. And Jesus said, okay, don't tell anyone for now. That's the big question in Mark. Who do you say that Jesus is? C.S. Lewis famously has used the four L's. Jesus doesn't leave you a lot of wiggle room. If someone comes to you and says they're the son of God from everlasting to everlasting and that they bear the weight of bringing God's new creation into the world, you can't just be like, oh, well, I kind of like you or I don't. <laughs> he's either lying or he's crazy. I mean, could you imagine, like, you know, to some degree, you view me here as somewhat of a religious leader because I'm in a church talking in the room, okay? 
If I told you I'm the son of God, run far, run fast. Either I'm straight up lying or I've lost my mind. I'm not that. Or he's a legend. A lot of people just say, oh, well, he's a legend. It was, you know, but there's too much historical data for that. So he's either Lord, as he said he was, liar, lunatic, or legend. And so this biography of Jesus is at pains to tell you he doesn't fit in any of your boxes. He's a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. He's a king like David's descendants, but he's more than a king. He's the son of God and the son of man. And so it's like, what is the appropriate response to a person like that? And Jesus himself tells you in chapter 1, believe him. This is what was amazing. This is what amazed Jesus is that they didn't. We'll talk about that in a second. So this little section, it's almost like a pause in the quote-unquote the advance of the success of Jesus, although it's not going to be a pause as we'll see, but this opposition is another opportunity for the identity of Jesus to come to the fore. And again, like Jesus asked his disciples in chapter 8, I would ask you, who do you say that he is? I think the most tempting thing for most people right now in our culture is to try to ignore Jesus or box him in. Those are the, that's why I've said that. I think those are the two main ways that we try to deal with the power and the glory of Jesus' claim. We just want to ignore him and just live our life. It's not how the story goes at the end. As we already sang, every knee will bow before him. He is the lion and the lamb. All, all things are under his submission. And so we want to gladly, and my encouragement would be willingly come and submit to him as your king and as your Lord now. That's who he is. So this theme is certainly all over chapter 6. Let's go to the second theme, which is specifically the opposition to him. And so the opposition to Jesus in his hometown, you know, the familiarity breeds contempt. There was that aspect of it. And, and by the way, if you have grown up in church, I think that's one of the obstacles to Jesus as well. You've kind of come to church a number of times. You've heard about Jesus. You've heard this. You've sung that. You've heard the sermons and blah, 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 you know, all that kind of stuff about Jesus. And you're so familiar with Jesus that you haven't really caught who he actually is. And so it's, a, it's almost like a form of opposition to him. And the root of that opposition is a lack of belief. If you're really close to Jesus, you don't have to have familiarity breeding contempt. Familiarity that breeds contempt comes from a lack of faith. Look what he says in verse 6. This is, you know, to me, very startling. And he marveled. Everyone say marveled. Not the comics. <laughs> Jesus was amazed. What amazes Jesus makes me stop. What do you think is amazing? You know, it's like when you're, you know, hanging out with Dave. Dave's a really good musician. I'm not. And when Dave says there's some, like, good music, I'm like, oh, that must be good music. <laughs> Here's the Son of God saying this is something special. Take note of this. Their unbelief. All of the reports that they've heard, they'd even seen some miracles in his hometown, even though it says that he couldn't do many because of their lack of faith. That's, 
you know, for all the power that Jesus has demonstrated, what seems to limit his power? People's lack of faith, unbelief. And so opposition to Jesus is rooted in unbelief. And so we see that there. We don't want to let our familiarity with Jesus harden our hearts. Contrary to that, we want to have hearts that are filled with faith. And the closer we get to him, the more we believe, the more we see his presence and power in our lives. You also see opposition to, to Jesus in his mission in chapter 6, verse 7 through 13. He sends out his disciples two by two on a mission. And so what Jesus is wanting to do here is he's trying to, in a sense, amplify. He's trying to megaphone his ministry, so to speak, because he knows he's going to get to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to go down there. He's going to die and he's going to rise again. And so he wants this message to get all over Israel before those events happen. And so he sends out his 12 disciples two by two. So mathematically, that's six pairs. That's what you came for. Now, that kind of math, sharp. Sends out these six groups. And they're saying and doing the same things that Jesus was saying and doing. Very simply, Jesus was casting out demons, and so they had authority over unclean spirits. And uh, Jesus was healing people, and so they were healing people. And Jesus was calling people to repent, to turn away from their other hopes and dreams, and to believe on him as the king. And these people were calling on people to repent and believe in Jesus as the king. So they are doing the exact same thing that Jesus was doing. And no surprise to Jesus... He prepares them for rejection. He says, when you go into a town, if people receive you, that's great. Stay with them. If they don't receive you, you know, to quote the great Taylor Swift, you know, you got to shake it off. Is that Taylor Swift? Yeah, okay, just making sure. One of my daughters loves her. So anyway. Now, what, the whole shake it off thing was, that was actually um, like a, a, a ritual where you're saying, I don't want to be identified with this particular house that rejected Jesus. Uh, you know, God's judgment may indeed come to them, and I don't even want to be associated. So that's what that was, that was what that ritual was communicating. But Jesus was saying, you should expect opposition. Jesus had opposition from the religious leaders. Jesus had opposition from his friends and family in his hometown, and when Jesus sent his disciples out on a mission, which we'll talk about in our third point, more, expect opposition. And then finally, there's this whole saga, this digression of John the Baptist. And what a mess this is, right? I mean, <laughs> the amount of the abuse of power in that story is incredible. I mean, first of all, Herod, which, by the way, this is not the same Herod of Jesus' birth. That's, a diff that's like his father. It's a different Herod. There's lots of Herods when you read first century Jew Jewish literature. This Herod was already married. He was the king of the Jews, so he should have been submissive to God's law. And he got rid of his wife, who was still alive, and took his brother's wife, and his brother was still alive. So that was a violation of God's law, big time. And John the Baptist, you know, who was no soft prophet, you guys know that, right? <laughs> I mean, he's out in the wilderness eating wild locusts and honey. I mean, this guy's not afraid to speak truth to power, okay? 
And so he had been consistently telling Herod, you should not have your brother's wife. You should not have your brother's wife. Well, his new wife <laughs> didn't take kindly to that. She was offended. Herod, though, even though he didn't like it, when Josh read that, did you see? It was kind of weird. Herod has a very weird relationship with John. He actually liked to hear him preach, even though he was preaching against him. And he thought John was a holy man and a righteous man. So his wife wanted John dead, but he's like, no, nah, we're not going to kill him. We'll just keep him in prison. <laughs> what? That's an abuse of power. He's literally keeping God's prophet incarcerated at his own whim. And then you've got Herod's birthday party, which that just was, you know, again, the humanity of these stories I love. You know, birthday parties, guys, have been a thing for like 2,000 years. <laughs> so if you want to have one, there's a long tradition of great birthday parties. Well, he's got a birthday party. He invites all the who's who, you know, Ro uh, Galilean officials and politicians and all this. And they bring in a young female dancer. And we all know what's happening there. It's exploitation of a young woman. That's what that is. For the pleasure of men. So that's horrible. And then he's drunk. Again, in the Greek, it says he kept promising. It's almost like, you know, he's tipsy. He's like, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll give you whatever you want. And so then she goes out and talks to her mother, who's obviously still mad at John. And now she's going to use her power to manipulate. You got exploitation and manipulation. And in the end, John is executed and loses his head. And so all the momentum of the kingdom seems like, whoa, what is happening here? And again, to go back to what this is the main, what, why is this digression even in here? All of this is to show you the miscarriage of justice on John's, uh, on John's life is, you know, <laughs> John is the forerunner to Jesus. What happens to John is going to happen to Jesus. And when we get those later chapters, the miscarriage of justice on Jesus' part is equally, if not more corrupt, deceitful. And so, you know, the disciples, you know, by the end of this, they're tired, they're exhausted, they hear about John, and it's like, whew. So brothers and sisters, friends, if you're going to follow Jesus, one of the, the very clear emphasis that is coming out of this passage right here is that you can expect opposition. And it's called a merism. You know, from top to bottom, from east to west, that's called a merism, and everything in between. So everything from Jesus' closest friends and family all the way on up to King Herod, and seemingly at every level in between, there's opposition. But hey, we know the end. He rises from the dead. We know the end. There's a new heavens and a new earth. And so, you know, who can stop the Lord Almighty? Answer, no one. And so even that little witness, that's why, you know, read all the way to verse 32, it's like there is a rest coming. There is a reconciliation coming. A resurrection is on its way. And by the way, this is, I didn't say this in the nine o'clock, so you're getting a better sermon because this is going to make it better right now. Sorry, I shouldn't make comments, but you know that Jesus' brothers and sisters did turn to him later? 1 Corinthians 9 talks about that a little bit. It's a little witness to the fact 
that people who oppose Jesus initially don't oppose Jesus forever. Amen? And he wins them. Specifically, the brother James there who was mentioned, who becomes the leader of the church of Jerusalem. And so we, you know, we get this identity, you know, Mark is burdened to show us who Jesus is and the appropriate response of faith, but that is not always the response. There is opposition seemingly every step of the way. And if you were to read back through Mark 1 through 6, you'll see spots here and there where that opposition is rising. And in fact, that opposition is going to build in the life of Jesus. And John's execution is a harbinger of it. Now lastly, and a theme that comes out of this, Jesus, this isn't just, Jesus doesn't want this Jesus movement, this Jesus project just to be local. And you're going to get the first, in a sense, witness that he wants this thing to go big. And he's got the 12 disciples there who are uh, an image of new Israel, and they're going to start spreading the message of Jesus. You know, here our mission statement here is to declare and demonstrate, joyfully declare and demonstrate the good news of Jesus to every man, woman, and child in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what, this is a little witness to it. And so he calls them and he sends them out two by two, which I think there's uh, a good argument for team ministry there and service. And the first thing we see that Jesus does when he sends them is he gives them his authority. So if we're going to be sent on Jesus' mission, yes, we can, we can expect opposition, but more than that, we can expect Jesus' power. He gave them authority. He gave them power. And if we're going to accomplish, you know, New City here, if we're going to accomplish Jesus' mission faithfully in our generation, we're going to need Jesus' power. We're not going to do it in our own strength. He gave them power over the unclean spirits. And then he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. (laughs) And I think this is a witness back to the Exodus. Remember, I've talked a lot about how Jesus is doing the new Exodus here. He's liberating that redemption idea. In Exodus 12, as they're about, they're going to be rescued and start the journey to the promised land. Moses says, Take a staff and some sandals and nothing else. We're going to travel lean and light. And so this is what Jesus is saying here. Hey, I'm about to accomplish this big salvation thing. And we're going to travel lean and light. And he says, no bread, no bag. And the Greek says, no in-the-belt money. I like that. No petty cash. You don't even need it. Because what Jesus sends us on, he will provide for. It's his power. And it's his provision. And so, I, you know, I would say, New City Church, you know, what do we actually need here at our church more than anything? You know, talk about building, talk about programs, talk about those things. You know what we need? We need God's power. And we need to trust his provision. I mean, you look at what, at how the gospel advanced, literally spread like wildfire, you know, within 30 years of this initial sending here, with no bread, no bag. God's provision and God's power. I would say the primary way that that is accessed, by the way, is through prayer. Ask, 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 ask of me. Prayer is this demonstration of we can't, but you can. 
So if you've never been to a prayer and praise, come on out. We love prayer and praise. We're seeing God answer prayers regularly. Even this morning, I saw one. And as I said, this foreshadows the, the later sending. When Jesus rises from the dead, he says, All authority in heaven has been given to me. Go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Teach them whatever I've commanded you. And behold, lo, I am with you till the end of the age. So what do we need on God's mission? God's presence. God's presence, God's provision, and God's power. What can we expect on this? We can certainly expect some opposition, but we are also going to be expecting, quote-unquote, success in the kingdom of God because of his presence, his power, and his provision. And so, friends, brothers and sisters, I just want to, you know, this, this, this was an interesting passage as I came across it. You know, I'm not saying those other ones were lighthearted, but, you know, last week when there's a, uh, you know, a woman who's been sick for 12 years and spent all of her living on the doctors and Jesus with a word cleanses her, so to speak, and then Jairus' daughter is 12 and she dies and he rises her from the dead. It's so emotional. It's so like... You know, I don't want to say like Hollywood, but it's like so awesome. And then you get to chapter 6, and it's like opposition, opposition, beheading. It's like, what is going on? The answer to that question is, in God's kingdom, we can expect opposition. But in God's kingdom, we can absolutely 100% expect that he is going to be present, that he is going to provide, and that he is going to bestow his power on us. Amen.